electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Brian. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead today on The Exchange. Rescue and cleanup efforts underway as Hurricane Ida slams Louisiana. Millions still without power. And the energy market is bracing to see how long refineries will be offline. We've got all angles of the story covered. And markets are rallying again today with more new highs for the S&P and NASDAQ. Dom was just tallying them up like 56 new highs, Dom, something like that. Wild. That said, September has traditionally been a weak month for markets. So as we close out August, where do stocks go from here? And the travel rebound is hitting a roadblock. Airlines cutting capacity. Did the stocks get ahead of themselves? It's all ahead this hour, but we do start with all those records. And Mr. Domchu is here with the numbers. So, so Kelly, it's like 52 record closes. I mean, that's just, I mean, forget about the number of intraday records we've seen. 52 record closes, and maybe it's again today, but that's what we're seeing right now in the NASDAQ composite, 31 record closes for it. We're going to put the yellow stars up there right now because we did see those record levels. But again, the Dow Industrial is the laggard so far today, just about flat. Then the S&P 500, the first time about 4,500, you can kind of see there that move higher. And the Nasdaq Composite up by about one full percent. Mega cap technology and communication services names are leading the way higher, by the way. Names like Alphabet, Apple, NVIDIA, all amongst a slew of stocks, around 64 in the S&P 500 that have made record highs so far today. Checking out one other part of the market that's getting a lot more attention. Support.com, a software company, AMC Entertainment and GameStop. We're going to call this the OG, the original gangster of the meme stocks out there, is up about 5%. Recent weakness there. AMC is up about 10, 11%. But Support.com is the latest Wall Street bets, Reddit forum target for short sellers. They're trying to bid this stock up. It's up 38%. And just to give you some context, earlier this year, to start the year, this was a $40 million market cap, micro cap company. It's now worth close to $900 million in today's trade. So keep an eye on support.com, Wall Street bets, short sellers, Reddit, you name it, all part of that theme. And then the stocks to watch today on our own CNBC report from Kate Rooney. PayPal, exploring stock trading on its platform. According to sources familiar, those shares up 3%. Meanwhile, the ripple effects carry to Robinhood. If PayPal gets in on the game for stock trading, what does it do to Robinhood? Those shares down 4.5% right now. We'll have more on that story throughout the course of the day. But still, an interesting move, a divergence, if you will. Right, Kelly? For those online payments and brokers, PayPal, Robinhood going in opposite directions. I'll send things back over. We will have much more on that still to come, Dom. Thanks. Let's turn back to the broader markets. What is driving stocks forward to all of these highs Dom was talking about? And how has this leadership changed as Delta spreads? Bob Bassani has more from the NYSE. Bob? And Kelly, the important thing is rotation that we've been seeing in and out of growth, in and out of value throughout the month. Let me show you some stocks that have had particularly strong momentum in the last few weeks. It's generally characterized by tech, biotech, and some industrials. Last couple of weeks, Regeneron's been on fire. A number of biotechs have been really on fire. Alphabet and some, a few of the really big mega cap techs have been doing uh, well, including Facebook, uh, and a smattering of industrials like uh, Adobe, excuse me, uh, Eaton, for example, uh, Dover, uh, some of the other ones like Carrier, also strong. Adobe is perpetually strong uh, so far this year. Subsectors, thematic tech has made a big comeback in the last couple of weeks. So cloud computing's been on fire in the last couple of weeks. Uh, FinTech in general, semiconductors have been strong. Software has been strong. What's this got in common? Well, it's thematic tech, essentially, uh, has got the momentum right now. In August overall, we've seen a modest return to big cap stocks and growth stocks, over small cap and value. Remember, this has been switching leadership all throughout the year. But so far this month, the S&P 500, the big cap, modestly outperforming small caps. This year, though, small caps actually has done a little bit better overall. But most of that gain came earlier in the year. Small cap mostly sideways since then. Growth's been outperforming value. And again, earlier in the year, value was far bigger performer. But in the last month, growth has made a comeback. Uh, how about what's going on in the, the worst months and the best months in, the, in terms of what 
we dealing with? Well, you know this, of course. September is the worst month of the year. It's down fractionally. This is since 1945. August, September uh, are two of the three worst months, and that's just a fact. But you see the downside is fairly modest. February also is down. Remember, October gets better. November, December, January usually is the best three-month period for the year. Kelly, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Bassani. My next guest sees a number of caution signals flashing, but he's also got some stock picks that he feels are underappreciated. With me now is Barry James. He's the president and portfolio manager at James Investment Research. Barry, it's great to see you. Let's start overall with this note of caution you're sounding. Yeah, um, you know, the market is is quite elevated right now. And the first thing I want to say uh, is new highs do not mean you need to sell. Because if you'd have done that, you'd have sold at the end of last year and missed a 20% rally. Sure. So new highs tend to beget new highs. I'll say that to start with. But there are some caution points. The, uh, the information that came out of Jackson Hole about tapering last time in 2013 had a bit of a setback, and then the market recovered. But there's also a couple other things we see that I, we think will impact the market. There's too much enthusiasm. Bank of America says their private clients have 65% of their assets in stocks. It's a record. And then if you take it to the broader uh, you know, audience, if you will, a third of financial assets of households is in stocks. Another record. So that makes me a little bit nervous. The other thing is the people I like to follow, the smart people, are the companies themselves. And um, they're showing too much enthusiasm right now as well. They are adding and adding and adding shares at a pace that's higher than what we saw in the dot-com bubble. Yes, they're buying back some, but they're really dumping it out there. And just the, the last thing I would like to say that makes me a little nervous is margin debt. When people are borrowing money to buy stocks, the market goes up. It's lovely. But when you hit a peak and it starts heading down and we're down 4% from that peak, it indicates that, well, at least 75% of the time, the market's down in the next, uh, you know, in the next six months or so. So those are some of the warnings. But I look for the exit. Don't run through the exit. Sure. <laughs> That's what I'd say right now. <laughs> stay nimble, stay alert, as Art Cashin, uh, the great Art Cashin, always says. Let's turn to some of the names, Barry. Are these names you would buy now? Would you wait for entry points? You know, t- talk me through the list a little bit. Sure. Um, what we see right now, it's time to rebalance and refocus. Rebalance, if you're way above your equity that you would normally uh, have in your portfolio, take it back down. Use this to, to, to re, rebalance. And then refocus at what you're looking to buy. We think quality, quality, quality is really important. And we've seen that in a lot of the quality indices. And what do I mean by that? High return on equity, uh, low financial leverage, and uh, we like companies that have stable or rising dividends. Those are the three. And I have a couple names, and uh, I'll, I'll get to those if you want me to. Sure. Well, let's go quickly through two of them, just so people are aware. ASML, the chip maker, uh, or semiconductor equipment maker, and Danaher are two of them. The third, though, I just want to dwell on for a moment because it's just had big news in the last hour, so you've probably heard PayPal. PayPal owns Venmo. Right. Venmo just, uh, according to our Kate Rooney, is potentially looking at getting into stock trading and, and going up against Robinhood. I'm going to ask you a totally speculative question, Barry, but if they were to go in that direction, would that make the stock more or less attractive to you? Oh, it would make it a a lot more attractive. As I said, a third of financial assets in households across the country are in stocks. And uh, people seem to have a a strong draw that way right now. So I think that would be a a pretty good move for them. And and they have the money to do it and the cash flow to do it. So I don't see that as being any problem. But this is sort of interesting to me. I mean, you know, what is your perspective as somebody who's both, you know, a money manager, obviously, you know, you trade yourself, you're watching this explosion of retail interest and now the proliferation of trading platforms and zero commission trading and all the rest of it. How much competitive space is there for all of these new platforms to get into this territory? I, I don't really understand. Is it just because the market share is growing so much or they're trying to take it from others or, you know, it, it, especially at a time when the SEC is warning about gamification and some of the things that have, has made Robinhood so successful? Where is this all going? <laughs> That's a great question, Kelly. Um, you know, as I look at it, uh, people that think they can day trade, they can't. Uh, less than 1% can actually make a living day trading. So that's a scary part. 
And I've seen it with cousins and other folks, friends of mine that have tried it. And in the end, they, you know, they had to give it up. Uh, so I don't think that that's a, a permanent situation. But if people will look and, you know, invest wisely, not speculate, but invest wisely, then it gives a, a, a much broader uh, audience. And there's still plenty, plenty, plenty of money out there that could move into these types of things. So I'm not particularly worried about that uh, in, in terms of, you know, having a negative impact overall on the economy or the stock market. Interesting. And it also reminds me of the journal story of the weekend. They had a bunch of stories about social media and uh, the new influencers uh, in terms of stock picks and all that. And they said one of the sort of cardinal rules uh, is to always be bullish, that being bearish doesn't grow your followers, it doesn't grow your audience. And I'm thinking that's, again, another side of a bull market. We'll leave it there, Barry. We'll check back in soon. We'll see how September goes. We appreciate your time today. Barry James from James Investment Research. Let's get now to the latest in the fight against the Delta COVID variant. While vaccines and boosters are getting all the headlines, a spike in cases has actually led to a need for more treatments. Regeneron, Glaxo, Eli Lilly, they're all among the companies working on antibody drugs. Let's bring in Meg Terrell with more on this overlooked angle of the story. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So some of these drugs have been available on the U.S. market since last fall from Eli Lilly and Regeneron. And of course, Regeneron's drug was used to treat President Trump when he got sick with COVID-19. Now there's also one on the market from Veer Biotechnology, partnered with GSK. Dr. Fauci last week touting these treatments, saying that early treatment with these antibody drugs can reduce hospitalization or death from COVID by 70 to 85 percent. They're indicated for people at high risk of severe disease, either because of age or underlying health conditions. But until recently, really the just the last six weeks, we haven't seen them be used really widely. But Regeneron tells us that from early July to now, the usage or at least the shipment of these doses has gone up by sixfold from less than 25,000 doses before mid-July per week to now more than 150,000. HHS also tells us they've seen significant increases in ordering uh, in recent weeks, primarily from areas with lower vaccination rates. And you can see here here, that region in the southeast accounts for almost half of the orders we've seen since July 1st. And then uh, the area around Texas for about a third of the orders we've been seeing. Veer Biotechnology CEO telling us he's concerned there could be a potential shortage of these drugs. They're the only company that does not have a government purchase order. Uh, Eli Lilly and Regeneron both do. And Regeneron right now says that supply looks to be plentiful, as does HHS. Lilly's drug actually had been paused uh, for a time in the United States because its combination wasn't working against some of the variants. The FDA says it does work against the Delta variant and now has been unpaused in these 22 yellow states where the uh, resistant variants are less prevalent, Kelly. So uh, these drugs really getting a lot more use now um, yeah. in lower vaccinated areas. I, unfortunately, you. friends of ours in Florida, this is literally what's happened to them over the past couple of weeks. Um, I'm curious as people are starting to speculate about whether Delta has, quote unquote, peaked. What can you tell us, just generally speaking, about case count hospitalizations? I suppose it's people trying to find some comfort as these numbers continue to spike. The numbers are really scary. 100,000 people in the hospital right now with COVID. These are numbers we didn't expect to see again after the vaccines really started getting rolling, getting rolled out broadly. Uh, I have seen some notes suggesting that at least the pace of the increases has been slowing, and that is some good news, but it's not the news that you're looking for, which was the case numbers and the hospitalization numbers and death numbers being as low as they were back in June. Uh, and now with schools going back into session, there's a lot of concern about what we'll continue to see throughout the fall. Yeah, no, we're talking, you know, to some of our neighbors and saying, do we need to set up little bubbles again for the winter? And it's like, I don't want to deal with this all over again. Uh, but here mm-hmm. we go. Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Our Meg Terrell with the very, very latest on the COVID thanks. front. Coming up, we're continuing to follow the damage from Hurricane Ida. We're tracking the disruption to the energy supply and looking at how much it could cost the insurance industry. The latest on both of those fronts in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Gasoline prices had already jumped more than 40 percent from last year, and that was before Hurricane Ida cut through the Gulf of Mexico, through Louisiana and through Mississippi, where widespread power outages will complicate efforts to restore refinery and pipelines. How long could this last and how bad will the damage be? Joining me now is Richard Joswick. He's head of global oil analytics at S&P Global Platts. Richard, it's good to see you. First of all, how's the damage this morning as we know? Well, uh, a, a lot of facilities are out of power and roughly 2 million barrels a day of capacity are offline right now. But luckily, the storm missed m- many of the uh, more vulnerable areas and uh, it could have been worse. It could have been up to 4 million barrels a day that, that, are, that are out. Is that about 12 percent of supply, uh, roughly speaking? Well, let, let's put it in terms of gasoline. That's like 750,000 barrels a day of gasoline. And, you know, in the United States, we consume over eight and a half million barrels. So, you know, that, it's, it's a big number. Um, that volume typically is supplied not just to the Gulf Coast area, but also goes up a pipeline, the colonial pipeline system to the U.S. East Coast. And it's also exported. Mexico really relies on U.S. gasoline exports. So really all three regions are uh, a little bit vulnerable here to this loss of capacity. So we've seen a lot of shortages crop up for various supply chain reasons over the past year or so. Are we going to see a repeat of that? Well, uh, from the refiner's perspective and the terminals, I don't think so. There's roughly uh, 8 million barrels of of extra inventory in the U.S. Gulf Coast above what would be like a minimum level. Uh, U.S. East Coast is a little bit tighter, but 8 million barrels of capacity, that could you know, cover this outage for uh, a couple of weeks, let's say. So the, at the refinery level, we're probably okay. At the terminal level, we're okay. The question we always have is, uh, is there panic buying? That's what happened when we had the uh, the cyber attack, the ransomware attacks and, and, and other things where people start, you know, filling up their gas tanks. There really is no call for that. There is no shortage um, uh, now, and, and, and there doesn't need to be a, a shortage Uh, over the next few weeks. I understand that one of the things we're waiting to find out is just how long refineries will be without power, that the situation today from a storm that hit yesterday is not so much about what's happened in the past 24 hours, but about if these outages persist for a week or two weeks or even three weeks, right? That's correct. Um, You you know, most of the refiners learn their lesson from Katrina. Uh, they hardened their refineries. They, they moved their equipment up above, up above typical water levels. They, they made it more resistant to wind. So the facilities are likely not damaged or not extensively damaged. The, the key question is, when will they get their power back? Now, we, we've been looking at energy, uh, what they're supplying, and you know several refineries have power right now. So uh, it's not like the whole region is down. Several major refiners still don't have power. Um, you know, we would expect, uh, you know, one to two weeks for facilities to come back, assuming that energy works uh, at getting power back, then the refiners have to go in and assess if there's any damage. And then the restart process typically takes a couple of days. So if this is over in, in, you know, one or two weeks and supplies are adequate for one or two weeks, uh, we'll probably be okay. Yeah. And I think uh, sort of the second half of that would be if it goes on for longer, then we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know, and we just don't know what, what will happen, uh, you know, for if there's another storm. You know, people have been comparing this to Katrina. Katrina was unique. It had uh, it was the largest storm of its time. Uh, the, the U.S. economy was 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 roaring. Gasoline demand was high. Refineries were running full out and it really caused a lot of problems. And it was followed immediately by uh, another hurricane and three weeks later, Rita. So that one two punch really spiked things up. Prices back then uh, spiked by a dollar a gallon or, or more. Even we do not expect that to occur this time. Um, if we look just at the markets right now, prices are up four cents a gallon. Um, prices are up you know, compared to a week or so ago. But a lot of that is just that the global price of crude oil has moved up a bit over the last week. Sure. Um, and and those, 
Yeah, those differences that you pointed out, I thought, you know, again, are quite germane, both in demand, supply, and then the additional hurricane back in 2005. Richard, go ahead. I I want to add one more thing. Because the the, uh, U.S. East Coast is supplied by the Gulf Coast, if we have a price effect, we should see it in the East Coast as well as the Gulf. Okay, sure. And I'll let you know when I go to fill up in a couple of weeks' time. Richard Joswick, thank you. We appreciate it today, keeping us posted on the very latest in the energy complex. And coming up, shares of a firm are soaring as Amazon moves into the buy now, pay later market. Meanwhile, it's been a bumpy ride for Peloton as the stock is down 15% in a month. More on both of these movers right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back, everybody. Gasoline prices had already jumped more than 40 percent from last year, and that was before Hurricane Ida cut through the Gulf of Mexico, through Louisiana and through Mississippi, where widespread power outages will complicate efforts to restore refinery and pipelines. How long could this last and how bad will the damage be? Joining me now is Richard Joswick. He's head of global oil analytics at S&P Global Platts. Richard, it's good to see you. First of all, how's the damage this morning as we know? Well, uh, a, a lot of facilities are out of power and roughly 2 million barrels a day of capacity are offline right now. But luckily, the storm missed m- many of the uh, more vulnerable areas and uh, it could have been worse. It could have been up to 4 million barrels a day that, that, are, that are out. Is that about 12 percent of supply, uh, roughly speaking? Well, let, let, let's put it in terms of gasoline. That's like 750,000 barrels a day of gasoline. And, you know, in the United States, we consume over eight and a half million barrels. So, you know, that, it's, it's a big number. Um, that volume typically is supplied not just to the Gulf Coast area, but it also goes up a pipeline, the colonial pipeline system to the U.S. East Coast. And it's also exported. Mexico really relies on U.S. gasoline exports. So really all three regions are uh, a little bit vulnerable here to this loss of capacity. So we've seen a lot of shortages crop up for various supply chain reasons over the past year or so. Are we going to see a repeat of that? Well, uh, from the refiner's perspective and the terminals, I don't think so. There's roughly uh, 8 million barrels of uh, extra inventory in the U.S. Gulf Coast above what would be like a minimum level. Uh, U.S. East Coast is a little bit tighter, but 8 million barrels of capacity, that could you know, cover this outage for uh, a couple of weeks, let's say. So at the refinery level, we're probably okay. At the terminal level, we're okay. The question we always have is, uh, is there panic buying? That's what happened when we had the the cyber attack, the ransomware attacks and, and, and other things where people start, you know, filling up their gas tanks. There really is no call for that. There is no shortage, um, uh, now and 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 there doesn't need to be a, a shortage uh, over the next few weeks. I understand that one of the things we're waiting to find out is just how long refineries will be without power. That the situation today, from a storm that hit yesterday, is not so much about what's happened in the past twenty four hours, but about if these outages persist for a week or two weeks or even three weeks. Right. That's correct. Um, you, you know, most of the refiners learn their lesson from Katrina. Uh, they hardened their refineries. They they moved their equipment up above up above typical water levels. They they made it more resistant to wind. So the facilities are likely not damaged or not extensively damaged. The the key question is when will they get their power back? Now we, we've been looking at energy, uh, what they're supplying, and you know several refineries have power right now. So uh, it's not like the whole region is down. Several major refiners still don't have power. Um, you know, we would expect, uh, you know, one to two weeks for facilities to come back, assuming that energy works uh, at getting power back. Then the refiners have to go in and assess if there's any damage. And then the restart process typically takes a couple of days. So if this is over in, in, you know, one or two weeks and supplies are adequate for one or two weeks, uh, we'll probably be okay. 
Yeah, and I think uh, sort of the second half of that would be if it goes on for longer, then we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know, and we just don't know what what will happen. Uh, you know, for if there's another storm. You know, people have been comparing this to Katrina. Katrina was unique. It had uh, it was the largest storm of its time. Uh, the the U.S. economy was 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 roaring. Gasoline demand was high. Refineries were running full out, and it really caused a lot of problems. And it was followed immediately by uh, another hurricane. And three weeks later, Rita. So that one-two punch really spiked things up. Prices back then uh, spiked by a dollar a gallon or, or more. Even we do not expect that to occur this time. Um, if we look just at the markets right now, prices are up four cents a gallon. Um, prices are up you know, compared to a week or so ago. But a lot of that is just that the global price of crude oil has moved up a bit over the last week. Sure. Um, and and those, know, yeah, those differences that you pointed out, I thought, you know, again, are quite germane, both in demand, supply, and then the additional hurricane back in 2005. Yeah. Richard, I mean, go ahead. Last yeah, well, I, I want to add one more thing. Because the, the uh, U.S. East Coast is supplied by the Gulf Coast, if we have a price effect, we should see it in the East Coast as well as the Gulf. Okay, sure. And I'll let you know when I go to fill up in a couple of weeks time. Richard Joswick, thank you. We appreciate it today. Keeping us posted on the very latest in the energy complex. And coming up, shares of a firm are soaring as Amazon moves into the buy now, pay later market. Meanwhile, it's been a bumpy ride for Peloton as the stock is down 15 percent in a month. More on both of these movers right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. The Dow hanging on to a slight gain. The S&P is up half a percent. And the Nasdaq is the strongest today. It's up nearly 1%. We have a bunch of individual movers to check on as well. Shares of Affirm are up huge after announcing on Friday it has teamed up with Amazon for buy now, pay later options. A 42% gain today. Just extraordinary. Leading the S&P after Barron's recommended the stock, saying that the company, uh, I'm sorry, this is HP now. Get a quick check on what's going on back here. HPQ shares are up about 3% on the session. Dell up about 1%, and this was after the Barron story that was recommending them, saying they look cheap right now. Meanwhile, Capital One is the worst performer on the S&P, bear downgrading the stock to underperform after being a bull on the name for all of last year and this year so far. But now they feel the risk-reward trade is skewed to the downside. COF is down almost 5%. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. Moments from now, President Biden is scheduled to discuss Hurricane Ida with governors and mayors whose states and cities have been hit by the storm. Ida is now a tropical storm with sustained winds of 40 miles an hour, came ashore as the fifth most powerful hurricane to ever make landfall in the U.S. And Ida's confirmed death toll remains at one, a person near Baton Rouge whose house was hit by a tree, although casualties are expected to rise. Many roads remain blocked and cell phone service is still knocked out in some areas. And Afghanistan evacuation efforts are winding down ahead of tomorrow's deadline for troop withdrawal. The Pentagon saying that there is still time for remaining Americans to get out of Afghanistan. And on the news, troops staying alert for more terror attacks and a full analysis of President Biden's remarks on Afghanistan, which are expected later this afternoon. Tune in tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Coming up, Hurricane Ida tearing through Louisiana is a Category 4 storm. Now a tropical storm making its way across the eastern U.S. We'll get a look at why Ida could become one of the costliest storms on record and what it means for the insurance stocks next. Stay with us. Welcome back. The rescue and recovery efforts continuing today after Hurricane Ida slammed the Gulf Coast. Billions of dollars in damages are likely. Contessa Brewer is here now with a look at what it will mean for the insurers. Contessa? So, Kelly, first big U.S. hurricane to make landfall this season, and insurers with exposure in Louisiana will likely see a hit to their third quarter earnings, with analyst estimates coming in for damage of more than $15 billion, and in some cases as high as $25 billion. But, of course, there's flooding that continues in the region. Authorities are out assessing the storm's impact as we speak. So we may not get a real cl- clear-cut picture just yet. But here's what happens. Typically after a hurricane, 65% of the insurance claims that come in come from homeowners' policies, 30% from commercial lines, and then 5% in personal auto. That's according to a note published by Wells Fargo analyst Elise Greenspan. She also says that reinsurance yeah, reinsurance rather, could kick in for insurers with major exposure in Louisiana. So, for instance, State Farm has the highest market share at 23 percent. Progressive has 12 percent. Allstate has 10 percent. 
Berkshire Hathaway, 7%, and then and USAA has 5%. Now, AIG, Travelers, Chubb, the Hartford have far less, but they still have some exposure here. Two things that we'll watch, whether this adds to the pricing power we've seen for insurers in raising rates. They typically can only raise rates in these regulated markets after they show proof that the damages are exceeding what they're charging for policies. And then whether companies pause share buybacks to see what the rest of the hurricane season brings. As far as Ida goes, the storm itself is predicted to go to the northeast, bringing more rain to already saturated states. Think of Tennessee and all it's been through. That could mean more claims. And then tornadoes also add to the insurance risk. Of course, we already know those tornado watches and warnings are widespread. So right now, it's just that the insurers are bracing to see what claims that they're uh, going to tackle coming in and where they're coming from, Kelly. Absolutely. Contessa, that's great information. Thank you, Contessa Brewer. Our next guest says that when you combine Ida with climate change, rising cyber risk and COVID, higher premiums are likely to be with us for a while. So what stocks will see the biggest benefit? Joining me is Kathy Seifert. She's a vice president at CFRA Research. Kathy, it's good to have you. So like we've mentioned, there's a lot of reasons why uh, insurance companies might be able to raise rates. How much of an increase do you expect and which stocks should benefit the most? most? Well, I mean, as Contessa was saying in her in her piece, yeah, the personal lines insurers are a little more regulated and it's a little more difficult for them to raise rates. There's a little more justification. There's a lot more um, tightness, if you will, in the commercial line space. And so I, I sort of have a little bit of a positive bias of the, in the commercial lines market. And I like, I like Chubb. I think they're well positioned to raise rates. Um, I like Markel, a specialty insurer. Um, I think AIG, who that has several catalysts, not the least of which is um, a restructuring and the splitting up of the life in the PNC group. So I think there's some catalysts there. But I do think um, the combination of multiple catastrophes and expected heavy storm season. Um, and, you know, the multiple risks that you mentioned are all fueling an increase in insurance rates. Um, and that ultimately becomes the catalyst for the stocks. Yeah, because the way that we're all having this discussion almost sounds like these companies want storms to happen. I mean, they can't wish for these losses. No. And honestly, if you look at what the stocks are doing today, the uncertainty is weighing on them. And clearly no one wants losses. There is excess capacity in the insurance marketplace. Um, And the sort of supply and demand calculation is such that, you know, losses extract capacity, which drives up, you know, premium rates. Um, They clearly don't want the losses. They're all in a good position to be able to pay the losses. I don't necessarily think the incremental incremental increase in rates from these catastrophes are going to necessarily turn the market the way it would if we were coming into this hurricane season in a soft insurance market. The market's already hardened. So incrementally, I don't necessarily see this as much of a catalyst, more of sort of one more piece to a puzzle um, that leads to firmer rates. And, you know, it's interesting because I remember writing about this topic at The Wall Street Journal probably 15 years ago now, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And even at the time, there was a lot of discussion about you know, the market's a little soft, there's excess capacity, how are we going to get to hard market, how are we going to raise rates? So it almost feels like this perpetual kind of nagging problem for the industry, and yet somehow they seem to sort of survive, arguably thrive, I don't know that much about it, but in this kind of environment. So let's talk about some of the other pressures that they're facing, which could lead to rising premiums. For instance, cyber risk in particular. I mean, there's a lot of losses on these policies there, you know, the prices are hardening dramatically. It's really expensive to get this coverage. So what, what do you think is most important in terms of people having to pay more for their insurance? And again, does that kind of go back to which names you'd recommend here uh, that people hold on to for the remainder of this year? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting and it's important to sort of separate people paying more for their insurance versus investors capitalizing on a market phenomenon. And those are sort of almost conflicting goals, if you will. Um, so I think the, you know, the cost of transferring risk has become more expensive over the last two years. It is what it is. 
As it relates to cyber, I think the one thing, um, the uncertainty over um, how cyber insurance coverage is going to be structured going forward is something that I think investors and, and you know, industry watchers need to be aware of. Um, ransomware is currently covered or the payment of ransomware is covered under certain policies. That an argument could be made that that's fueling some of the ransomware attacks. So I think we're going to see a restructuring of the cyber insurance market. We've already seen, I mean, cyber insurance is the line of business with the the greatest increase in rates, um, you know, bar none. Um, So I think we're going to see some um, structural changes in that marketplace. Yeah. And as you said, with wide ramifications for uh, for businesses in this country. So, again, going back to your strong buy recommendations, Allstate, a buy on AIG and Chubb. Uh, It was great to have you here, Kathy, today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Kathy Seifert of CFRA Research. Still ahead here on The Exchange, the pain continues for Peloton with shares down today and 13% over the past month. We'll look at why some analysts are now cranking up their resistance on the stock right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Peloton had been a stay-at-home darling as gyms were closed for months, but it's recently been hit on multiple fronts. Disappointing earnings, another price cut on its top-selling bike, and shrinking profit margin. CBC.com's Lauren Thomas joins us now to discuss Peloton Investors' new reality, Lauren. And um, why, why do you think this is prompting such a gut check? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. And I think there are really a number of factors at play here. And, and like you said before the break, I mean, if you're a Peloton investor right now, it really is a, you know, it's a good analogy to think of this as cranking up the resistance a notch or two on the bike. Uh, essentially what is happening here is, you know, Peloton is still growing, but the landscape in 2021 is certainly a lot different than what it was last year. And, and growth was coming very easy for Peloton last year. So much so, in fact, that you know, the company ran into a number of supply chain snafus and, and really had to invest in fixing that part of its business just because demand was so heightened. But now investors are really staring down this new reality. And I think what really prompted a sell off of the stock last week was the fact that growth in the future is not going to come as profitable as it has in the past. There are a number of levers, essentially, that Peloton is having to pull on uh, in order to keep fueling growth. And a lot of that means additional costs. So one headline last week certainly was the fact that Peloton has reduced the price of its original bike product by about $400. And a number of analysts that I spoke to said that cut actually came sooner than they anticipated and was a little bit larger than they expected. So that leaves some scratching their heads as to why why Peloton is making that cut. Uh, A a second factor at play here is the fact that uh, Peloton, you know, they need to find new pockets of growth, new customers. And in order to do that, they're really going to have to ramp up marketing expenses. Uh, I actually spoke to President William Lynch on the phone after those earnings results came out, and he told me that they're really going to lean into marketing in the next few months uh, to really ramp up awareness of its treadmill product. Uh, As you may recall, Peloton recalled both of its treadmills uh, earlier this year, and the less expensive version, uh, the tread, actually is going on sale again today. Uh, So, you know, Peloton, for this fiscal year that just started, it is not forecasting to be profitable. It's not forecasting to be profitable again until the following fiscal year. And I mean, and you talked to Simeon Siegel, who's been bearish on the stock for some time on valuation. He has the lowest price target on the street, around 45 bucks a share. So even today, it was, you know, he's on one end of the spectrum, obviously warning that a lot was already baked into the valuation and where shares were trading. But it was also interesting to see Citi initiating Peloton today with a neutral. You know, these initiations often come with big glamorous releases Mm -hmm. about how great these companies are. So for them to initiate with a neutral, um, you know, fearing moderating growth, they say they think uh, their colleagues have extrapolated recent strength for the next few years. And again, this speaks to certainly a, a change in sentiment. Maybe that's the setup for the stock to kind of reach that next level, you know, once once expectations come down. But I'm not sure if the price is there yet. 
Definitely. And I think last I checked, uh, analyst average price target on the stock is right about 130 bucks per share. Uh, of course, that's a bit above where it's trading at today. And I know it's down about 3%. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, uh, there are a number of things that Peloton could do, a number of catalysts uh, that could drive future growth. I mean, one is going to be additional product launches. I think everyone's waiting to see what Peloton is going to launch next. Uh, when John Foley, the CEO, was asked about that on the earnings call last week, he held off, you know, but there have been a number of rumors about a, a rowing machine potentially or additional strength equipment. So that's certainly something that could fuel sales in the future. Peloton is also continuing to launch overseas into new markets. Recently, it launched in Australia. Um, so I think, it, you know, it's a bit of a way in, wait and see game, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, it's a great piece. Thanks for joining me today. To read her full piece on Peloton, head over to CNBC.com. Still ahead, check out this mystery chart. It's a travel stock that's climbed nearly 10% over the past month despite the spread of the Delta variant. While the stock might be up, it's not all green for the sector. We've got a look at the divergence setting up in the vacation trade. Remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. With COVID cases still surging in the U.S., travel and hospitality companies and their investors are trying to gauge the appetite for getaways. Philabo has a look at how the airlines are handling an anticipated decrease in demand, especially into the holidays. While Seema Modi is tracking the divergence in the travel names, Phil, let's start with you and these cancellations we're seeing. Well, Kelly, it's not just cancellations. It's just that you're seeing softer bookings as you look into the fourth quarter. We asked the folks at OAG, which is an airline research and consulting firm, to track the numbers of seats. And they do this on a monthly basis. And it's pretty clear what we're seeing both for September and then as you go into the fourth quarter. In the month of September, the number of seats or the capacity that the airlines will have out there, it's going to be down 9.1%. And in the fourth quarter, it'll also be down just 6.8%. But remember, we're still early. We can see further cuts for the fourth quarter. And all of the major airlines are trimming their schedules. It's not a case of a few trimming it. It's across the board. And here's the reason why. Look at the passenger levels. We have plateaued. It was down 21% in July, started to see some softness in the second and third week of August, really fell off. I wouldn't say fell off, but we really saw a slowdown last week. Fewer, there were nobody who, uh, over 2 million a day in terms of passengers. We haven't seen that in a couple of weeks. So you take a look at the major airlines. We're talking about American, Delta, Southwest, and United. All of these guys are expecting business travel to be a little softer this fall. And typically, uh, September, October is when you start to see stronger business travel. They're not seeing that so far, so you're seeing some weakness there. And then when you look at the other airlines, uh, they're also seeing some weakness in terms of people, whether it's with bookings or, in some cases, some near-term bookings or some near-term flights they've canceled. Those customers have canceled those flights. So that's why you're seeing just a, a, an interesting and tough period, Kelly, over the next couple of months for the airlines. How big a catalyst or in, in terms of kind of annual demand Obviously, I would assume bigger for leisure than for business travelers. But how big of a deal are the holidays if we start to get into that period and people are right. once again going not this year? I think it depends on what we're seeing with COVID-19. I think it's clear that a lot of people have decided, look, I am going to travel. And even as we're seeing resurgence in cases, there's still a number of people who are out there. It's not like travel has fallen off the cliff like it did a year ago. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of people out there, and we're seeing this with the near-term bookings. They have decided... If there's a surge in cases, we're going to put off that trip. And we may see that for the holidays. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau tracking the latest on the airline front. Let's turn to SEMA now. With this divergence, SEMA, we're beginning to see in the travel stock recovery, some holding in there, others dropping back, others still charging ahead. Yeah, they used to all sort of move in tandem, Kelly, but now what you're finding is that investors are becoming a bit more selective, if you will. It's the names that are really betting on the vacation traveler that are outperforming so far in August. If you look at the cruise lines, up around 9 to 10% so far this month. Uh, and then you look at the hotels, a very different story there. Hospitality giants like Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, Expedia are down around 4 to 10%. Uh, part of that has to do with this growing concern about the business traveler. The expectation was that come Labor Day, companies... Employees will be coming back and would start to uh, check into hotels. But now there's this new survey from the American Hotel Lodging Association, which found that 67% of business travelers are planning to take fewer trips this year. Some are delaying their plans. 
Uh, we heard from Chip Rogers, the president of the American Hotel Lodging Association. Kelly, I know you've interviewed him as well. He's saying that hotels were already on pace to lose more business travel revenue this year than they did in 2020. Now, if companies do delay in-person work, does that increase demand for remote working? That seems to be the consensus amongst uh, sell site analysts that track Airbnb. Just take a look at this chart. This really tells you the story so far in August, Kelly. Airbnb up around 8% versus Marriott, which is down a similar amount. Um, and that, of course, you tend to think about Airbnb as a travel stock, but the market tends to put it in that stay-at-home bucket on this idea that if this Delta variant becomes a bigger concern, uh, people will prefer to stay in a home versus a hotel. Yeah, I, I just think back to July when it was like, great, you know, things are going to get back to normal by Labor Day. And now it's like, yeah. no, it's it, it's going to be years. I don't know. I don't know when. It's just it's going to be a lot more of a slog than we had thought. I just want to ask you sort of on that note, Seema, what is the latest with this EU directive about uh, travel from the U.S. now? Yeah, so what we're hearing is that Europe is restricting non-essential travel for Americans to Europe. It will come down to the individual member states to come out with their policies and their guidelines. So wait to hear from Italy, Spain, France, among other countries in the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, but one of the criteria that Europe uses for a safe list is that a country has a stable to decreasing trend in COVID cases. That's not what we're seeing here. And that's why you're seeing Europe respond with these restrictions. Uh, but bottom line here is international travel is going to become a bit more complex going into the fall and the holiday season. So I know, Kelly, you were looking forward to that girls trip with me to Ibiza and Mykonos. <laughs> we may just have to delay that, Kel, to... Uh, Maybe early next year. Yeah, we'll how many screaming children do we want? Uh, no, but I guess my question would be, does this imply foreign, quarantine periods? Uh, maybe I'm going to send just them, and I'm going to take a, take a rest. Uh, quarantine periods, Seema, is it, does it mean you can't travel there at all? What are we talking so actually, two member, two uh, officials I actually spoke to in Italy said they may just go back to saying vaccinated Americans only. We will allow you in. But again, waiting for those details soon. All right. Sima, really appreciate it. Thank you. Our Sima Modi with the very latest. Still ahead, direct listings like Palantir and Spotify have widely outperformed traditional IPOs and the broader S&P. While they're still infrequent, could direct listings have the staying power to upend public offerings? That's next. Twenty twenty one has been a record year for IPOs with two hundred and seventy nine companies raising one hundred and four billion dollars so far. And we still have a quarter to go. But the names that have gone public the traditional way have underperformed the companies that have hit the markets via direct listing. So names like Spotify, Palantir and Coinbase have widely outperformed the S&P and the Renaissance IPO ETF from their opening trades. And while access to those companies when they're still private is usually reserved for institutional investors, there's one company that's granting access to individual investors. Joining me now is Greg Martin, the co-founder of Rainmaker Securities. Greg, it's good to have you here. Uh, tell us sort of what you guys are doing and why you think it's so important to help people get, uh, get access. Well, thank you, Kelly, for having me. So Rainmaker Securities is a broker-dealer enabling a marketplace for private securities transactions. So we help investors to access these companies before they go public as much of the growth lately has been occurring in the private markets. And by the same token, we enable employees and shareholders of these companies to get early liquidity while the company is still private. So we create this marketplace for private securities transactions. Are we talking high net worth or accredited investors or the general public? You know, we, we enable all sorts of investors, from the biggest investors in the world to some of the smaller investors to access these companies. We have a variety of techniques. We have nearly 60 reps on our platform. And, you know, we're one of the largest market makers. And so we really enable a wide swath of the population to access these companies, which heretofore were very difficult to access. Does that give you a point of view about the manner in which these companies go public? So, for instance, direct listing versus SPAC versus traditional IPO? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, you mentioned a couple of the successful direct listing companies. I mean, the reality is companies that choose to direct list probably already are great businesses and they already have a great following. And so that's probably one of the reasons they're successful IPOs. Otherwise, they wouldn't choose to go public via direct listing. Um, you know, generally, we see all sorts of companies. Um, companies ultimately need to be public company ready uh, to go public. And so we, we do see, we do get a lot of information, seeing how the companies trade up, seeing the types of investors that access these companies in the private, in the private markets. 
And so it, it does become a good indicator of how successful the companies will be in the public. So we are a good early view of, of how successful these companies will be as public companies. Yeah, I guess one final question on this, and then I do want to get to some uh, valuations you guys have been following. But if the direct listing is becoming sort of the uh, the elite way of going public, you'd have to think it might attract companies that wouldn't otherwise qualify so that they might enjoy that halo effect. So I wonder if it would undermine its own success. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think the companies themselves have to stand on their own. I don't think the direct listing creates the quality of the company. I think the quality of company creates the success of the direct listing. And as you mentioned, the companies you, you suggested, they're all great companies. They're great followings. They're well-known. They didn't need the traditional marketing exposure that would come from a traditional IPO, and that's why they've been successful. So I don't, I don't believe a direct listing is going to create a great company in the public market. I think the opposite is true. Let's kind of pivot to SPACs now, which uh, Dealbook had a nice write-up this morning about how uh, sort of law firms and others are trying to come out in defense of the SPAC, which has really uh, not gotten itself a great reputation. What's your own opinion on them? You know, again, I think a company that is public company ready will will determine its own fate. And I think one of the challenges is there was a lot of money raised early, you know, in the last 18 months in the SPAC market. And so they were chasing deals. And I think there were companies that were ultimately spacked into, into public companies that weren't ready to be public companies. And so I, I think a company does need to be uh, able to go public the ordinary way or else it's not going to succeed. And I think there were too many examples of SPAC uh, companies that really weren't ready to be public. And that's why they haven't succeeded. And I think we're seeing a rationalization of that. I think we're now seeing a lot more scrutiny put on the companies that that become part of a SPAC IPO. And I think the quality of companies that are going public via SPAC is much is much greater than it was even six, nine months ago. And I think that'll be a trend. A SPAC will still be a viable alternative to going public. There are benefits to going public via SPAC. But I don't think the quality of company is going to be diminished versus a traditional IPO as it was maybe for six to nine months there when yeah. the SPAC market was super hot. The shakeout has already happened. It's, a, it's an interesting point. Greg, thanks for joining us again. We'll talk maybe next time about some of these private market valuations, $100 billion and up. Greg Martin, we appreciate I'd love it. love to. <laughs> Let's look at how the IPOs have actually done this year. Here's a look at the Renaissance IPO ETF. It is flat. Remember the monster year it had last year? It's up less than 2% this year. It's top three holdings. Snowflake up just 2% this year. Palantir hanging on to around a 12%, 10% gain. Peloton weighing on a big time down 33%. That's it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.